Chapter 6 The Outcry, in which we examine the terms justice and righteousness and show why they're important to understanding what it means to love God. Genesis 18, verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we seek justice. We live right. We do what's right. We help set things right. We are the world. A number of years ago, I was working for a church in San Jose, and while my wife was seven months pregnant with our daughter, I found myself in Ethiopia, in a rural city called Zawai. I was there as part of a collaboration between two churches, one in San Jose, California, and one in Zawai, Ethiopia. My buddy Rob, who was Ethiopian and originally from Zawai, had introduced us to some folks he knew who led a local church there. We'd build a friendship, and I'd seen firsthand the work these local leaders were doing. We were trying to figure out how to support our sister congregation and its leadership. Now, I want to be careful here not to send the wrong message. Christian theologians and missiologists and sociologists have warned for years about the dangers of missionary tourism where Christians from the West go pop into a nation, hand out candy, paint an orphanage, and assume they've really solved some problems. This is not only dangerously patronizing, it's also just ineffective and wrongheaded. This was not that. I'm also wary of the tendency to paint certain parts of the world as helpless or needing rescuing or saving from the West. This was also not that. All mission work should be done in deep relational partnership and should empower local leaders on the ground. And this is what was happening in Ethiopia. We were trying to develop a brotherhood and brothers share what they have freely. Brother sisterhood, I guess you should say. I hope that that comes across in this story. Anyway, on to the story. One of the most pressing needs in the region was water. So there I was in Ethiopia with some brilliant project managers and engineers from our congregation, a group of Ethiopian nationals and church leaders from Zawai, and Rob, our translator, trying to figure out how to drill wells, not only for clean drinking water, but also wells to support agriculture for the village. I will remind you now that my degree in college was in literature, which, though great, did not exactly prepare me much for international drilling operations to improve food security in the Horn of Africa. I was in over my head immediately. Tragically, in the months before our trip, a drought had hit the region. I watched in the morning as farmers took their mules and horses and wooden plows and tilled the red earth with no hope of a crop. When I asked why they were doing this, Rob responded, in case there is rain next season, there is a hope they could save their family, but not if they lose their skill as farmers. Let me tell you the American proverb, work hard and you can make it in life evaporated in that moment. It's true sometimes, but it's not always true. Sometimes you get up at dawn and faithfully plow the earth, and your children fight starvation anyway. The elders and the local leaders explained the desperation of the situation through Rob, and it hit us all. 
These were our friends, our co-laborers in the kingdom, and their friends and their neighbors who were suffering. If we don't get emergency food relief out here, there won't be any need to dig wells, my colleague Jeff said soberly. Thankfully, we had some money. Earlier that spring, we'd put together a campaign for Lent to raise money for the people of Zawai. I watched in amazement as the congregation in San Jose was moved to give sacrificially to help people across the globe we'd only met a year earlier. In one weekend, our community raised $80,000. So we had some money to help. But when we went to the markets in Ethiopia to buy emergency rations to help the people of Zawai, there simply wasn't enough food. This wasn't like the U.S. where you could just go into a Costco and buy in bulk. The drought had completely disrupted the supply chain. We bought all that we could, transporting it from the capital city of Addis Ababa to Zawai in the back of our vans, but it wasn't enough. And as we drove out of Addis, I sat in the back of the bumpy van, the open diesel exhaust and heat choking me, and the oppressive poverty overwhelming me. As we headed back to Zawai, I knew we had maybe 65% of the supplies the village needed. What were we going to do? When we got to the village, I unloaded the massive bags of grain and rice and flour, and we bowed low to the elders of the village. Rob explained to us that this was the best way. The elders would be given all the supplies, and they would make the beneficial determination about who gets it. As I was about to go, a little girl saw us unloading and came out of her small home holding her bowl. She motioned to me as if to say, food? The little girl's name, I found out later, was Gannett, which means Eden, as in Garden of Eden. She was probably just about the same age as my son back at home. I thought about a speech I had heard recently given by U2 frontman Bono, who was campaigning for his Red Campaign to bring awareness to the most pressing issues of Africa. An accident of longitude or latitude should not decide whether a child lives or dies, he said. I thought about that phrase, an accident of longitude and latitude. I thought about the accident of longitude and latitude of my birth, how fortunate I had been to be born in the 20th century in the United States. I thought about the command from Jesus to love my neighbor as I would love myself. What if our places were reversed? What would I want? as a father if my own child didn't have enough food? What would I want if a man from another country who had more resources than I came to my home and saw my kids sitting with bowls asking for food because they were hungry? What would I hope the man's response would be? What would love look like in that case? The short answer is easy. I would want that other father to see my son like he saw his own son and be moved to real action to help provide us with food now and in the future. That is what I think it means to love my neighbor as myself. Two Types of Suffering Recently, I read an astute article in The Guardian by Oliver Berkman that made a light go off in my head. Berkman wrote the following words. He said, quote, There are two main kinds of suffering. There's the universal kind that comes from being a finite human faced with a limited lifespan, the inevitability of death, the unavoidability of grief and regret, the inability to control the present or predict the future, and the impossibility of ever fully knowing even those to whom we're closest. And then there is the kind that results from power disparities between groups, racism, 
sexism, economic inequality. Berkman's broader point in the article is that in modern Western culture, we increasingly talk as if the first kind of suffering barely counts or doesn't even exist, as if everything that truly matters were ultimately political. But what I've found is that discussions about suffering with Christians are often the opposite. Christians are keenly aware of the first type of suffering and realize that God has much to say about this universal human problem. But the second type of suffering, the type caused by, say, greed, power-mongering, by economic inequality, well, that's very complex. It doesn't have easy solutions and has political edges that are very messy indeed. This was the kind that Gannett and her village in Zawai were facing. And this experience in Africa showed me that the type of suffering caused by power differentials is real. It causes true harm to real people, which is very, very real, even if it's largely invisible to those of us in the West. And up until I visited Africa, it had been largely invisible to me. But it wasn't just that. Our small team quickly learned that we were dealing with issues that were bigger and far more complex than we had anticipated. For example, one, to drill the wells, we had to consult with local water officials who had fees. Some of the folks back home on the church board hated this idea, calling it an unethical bribe. Others simply shrugged their shoulders, calling it the cost of doing business in a foreign country whose rules were very different. How was I to bring those two sides together? Two, another U.S. nonprofit had recently drilled drinking wells in a nearby village about 50 miles away. But this free resource was soon swamped by demand. And then armed bands of roving gangs took over the wells, demanding payment from the local residents for the water, which was supposed to be free for the whole village. The nonprofit had to hire a private security firm to reclaim their wells. What if this happened to our wells? Although former African militia lord would look pretty great on my resume, I had no idea how to handle that. Again, I'd like to point out I majored in literature. Three, there was a very large freshwater lake in the area. And water experts with us suggested, hey, pumping water for irrigation by installing a large and simple but inexpensive pump house with connecting pipes would be a great solution. The usage they recommended wouldn't deplete or hurt the lake's water level and would provide for hundreds of acres of irrigated land. A major problem existed, though. A large multinational company based in the Netherlands had recently secured the water rights around the lake. They were using the water to supply irrigation to dozens of greenhouses filled with flowers. These flowers were then flown to Europe and sold, with almost all of the profit going to the company and very little staying in Ethiopia. Local workers were paid 20 Ethiopian burr a day, roughly 45 cents. The presence of this company made things tricky legally. The local village leaders were resentful, wondering how this company from the Netherlands got first rights to use the water when native Ethiopian villagers did not. I wondered the same thing. But money is a powerful thing. And my English degree didn't prepare me for how to win international legal battles over water use rights. Zawai, Ethiopia is where I saw firsthand what some scholars and some theologians call systemic injustice. What I was seeing was not a situation where one person did something wrong to another person. There was something deeply flawed about the system. Powerful groups had set up structures and systems, perhaps innocuously, but the end result was not encouraging human flourishing. It ended up exploiting, hurting, and oppressing. Sin had sunk deep and had grown deep roots. 
and there were real casualties, like Gannett. As we were about to leave on a bus to head home, our friend Negesso, who served like a bishop overseeing nine local churches in the Rift Valley, bolted onto the bus. He opened a small Bible. Before you leave, I want to read one verse over you and pray for you as you leave, Negesso said. He opened his Bible. Galatians 2.10 All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Remember the poor. That line stuck out to me. In this verse, the Apostle Paul is remembering his visit to Jerusalem. As Paul was leaving that city to go visit the fledgling churches throughout the Roman provinces, his friends, three monumental pillars of the early church named James, Peter, and John, told him to keep at the front of his mind the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem who were suffering terribly because of the combination of famine, wars, and such. Paul said he was eager to do this. These were not empty words. Paul would go on in his ministry to raise money for the relief for the people in Jerusalem. Remember the poor. This is what James, Peter, and John's parting words were to Paul as he went out on his missionary journey. Remember the poor. Okay, not that this story is or should be in any way about me, but I have to tell you, I left Zawai utterly frustrated. I was unable to purchase enough supplies to stave off hunger, frustrated by our dealings with local officials, felt powerless. I was laden with emotions like guilt and confusion and sadness, paralyzed because I was confronted with a problem that was way bigger than me, was way more complex than I could ever figure out, and required way more resources than I had. Negesso's plea from Galatians 2 echoed in my ears because I knew it had also been the plea of James and Peter and John. I know it had echoed around in Paul's ears, just as it was in mine. In a world filled with overwhelming amounts of suffering, caused by entrenched sin that has settled into cultures and society, what's a Christian supposed to do? How can I think better? How can I think biblically about these important issues? I know I have to do something, but I don't know what. Is there a way out of this confusing mental mess that doesn't end up in either apathy or blame or guilt? Well, wouldn't you know it, the story of Abraham is the place to go. Scooby-Doo and the Case of the Three Mysterious Strangers Genesis 18 is one of the absolutely strangest stories in the entire Bible but it's also become one of my favorites. There are so many things we can learn from this story, but for the sake of time, I'll focus on one lesson in this chapter and another main lesson in the next. First, let's go ahead and recap the story. It has been 24 years since God originally broke through time and space and called Abraham to leave his home of Haran. Abraham and Sarah still don't have a child yet, despite God's clear promises. Years have passed after Abraham and Sarah's debacle with Hagar, whose son Ishmael is now 13 years old. After the drought and the trip to Egypt, Abraham returned to the place in Canaan where God had spoken to him, and then God spoke again, promising Abraham and his offspring all the land he could see from the north, south, east, and west. So Abraham sticks around this area, which the Bible calls the area near the great trees of Mamre. During the elapsed time since our last story, God changed the names of Abraham and Sarah. 
The name Abram means father exalted, which is kind of like someone naming their kid. My dad's important. Nice, Tara. Nice. God changes it to Abraham, which means father of many nations, which is true not only biologically, but also because such a large segment of humanity would come to view Abraham as their spiritual father. The etymology behind Sarai's name change is a little bit harder to discern and more muddled, but Sarai seems to mean in the ancient languages princess, or, according to one Jewish commentator, quarrelsome. It's changed by God to mean princess of many. Again, this ties Sarah's destiny to God's good work to bless all the nations, as spoken in Genesis 12. If you're keeping track, Abraham has now had five apocalypses with God, where God has spoken to him, revealing something about the future and God himself. In Genesis 18, Abraham experiences yet another apocalypse, getting his sixth ring from God, tying him with Michael Jordan and Tom Brady. Genesis 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. God shows up with two angels, the three of them in the form of men. Abraham responds with hospitality that would have been common in the ancient Near East, and he offers not only water and shade, but takes the role of a generous servant, offering to make them a meal. The text is clear. Abraham has a servant prepare a tender calf, and he gets some cheese curds. So it's fair to say that veal parmesan is on the menu. Welcome to the Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. Genesis 18.6 says, So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three siyas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Now, I didn't know what a siya was, but my Bible tells me this is the equivalent of 36 pounds of flour. 36 pounds. I don't know how much bread 36 pounds of flour makes, but that sure seems like an awful lot of bread for three guests. Looks like our boy Abraham is pro-gluten. Way to carbo-load, my man. No keto for you. The point is, by preparing a calf and making bread from his finest flour, Abraham is offering his best hospitality to God and to his angel secret service. And in response, God, in true apocalyptic form, reveals something only God can know, saying that the long-awaited child he promised Abraham and Sarah would be born within the year. God, or one of the angels, the text is kind of unclear here, says the following, Genesis 18.10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. (laughs) Sarah, overhearing this promise from outside the tent, herself long past childbearing years, laughs to herself. Oh, goody, she must have thought. We're all going to be in diapers together. And God, who is apparently so powerful that he can turn our internal monologues into dialogues, challenges Sarah's completely understandable negative self-talk with a perspective-shattering reminder that, frankly, nearly all of us need to hear from time to time. Genesis 18.13, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? (laughs) Is anything too hard for the Lord? Look, I don't know who needs to hear that, but maybe you're facing what seems like an impossible or an irredeemable situation. 
I invite you, sit and think about those words for a little bit. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a good thing to ponder. Now, from a storyline standpoint, this revelation of the future is deeply important. Abraham is supposed to be a nation with many descendants who will bless the world after all. That's where this is going. But then the narrative pauses and pauses on that emphasis and pivots our focus. Because God is not down on the earth walking around in human form with two angels to perform an ultrasound and tell Sarah her due date. God is there for an entirely different reason. And that reason is the focus of Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And in terms of story development, this moment is about to reveal an awful lot about God. Don't make me come down there. After the three guests accept Abraham and Sarah's generous and hospitable meal, God and the two angels get up to leave. And then God tells Abraham why he is there. Genesis 18, 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Man, there is so much in this text, but I want to pull out three things that I think are worth paying attention to. Number one, God hears the cries of the people. God says that the primary reason for his travels is to investigate the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. The word outcry here is the Hebrew word ze'akah, and it's a loaded word. This term outcry will appear again as a hyperlink later in the biblical story when Abraham's descendants are enslaved by the evil empire of Egypt under a cruel pharaoh. The Bible says God heard their cry. And this term will appear perhaps most graphically when it's used in the law of Moses to describe the scream for help by a woman being raped. This word outcry is a charged word, referring to the plaintive, desperate, aching cry for help from someone being oppressed or being violated. God hears these cries. They reach his ears. But it goes further than that. Point number two, God gets involved. How does God respond when an outcry happens? The first act of physical violence in the Bible is when Cain kills his brother Abel in a rage of jealousy. God tells Cain that his brother Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And we see that same cry out, outcry language again. God comes down and investigates that murder, inviting Cain to confess and to repent, but also giving him a warning that, quote, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Like addiction, sin ultimately leads to the destruction and disintegration of a person. Sin results in the destruction of good things that God has made. But there's another side to this equation, too, and that is God apparently is also active and involved in confronting this kind of evil himself. That phrase, I will go down to see, is a hyperlink, 
It's the same phrase used in Genesis 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. And just like Babel, what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is an organized coordination of a society doing something that's not good. Sinful, in fact, as the text says. God himself comes down to investigate. God hears the cries of those who are being hurt and oppressed. He gets personally involved. God doesn't just hear, he acts. And point number three, God wants Abraham to be a certain kind of person, one that looks and acts just like him. In this sixth apocalypse, God reveals all this to Abraham. God starts off by saying, shall I hide this from Abraham? Which is a rhetorical question whose answer is clearly no. And the reason God gives can be traced back to Genesis 12, when God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. God is going to bless all the nations through Abraham. And here, we get a little bit more information about how exactly that will happen. Let me go back to Genesis 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him, God says, so that Abraham will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. There are two so that's in this verse that we need to pay attention to. First, God says that he has chosen Abraham so that he can teach his family and those in his circle of influence to, quote, keep the way of the Lord by doing, quote, what is right and just. This can also be translated as doing righteousness and justice. But what does that mean? Well, although we're unsure yet exactly what it means to keep the way of the Lord, it has to be tied to the idea that Abraham is going to serve as God's selim, God's representative on earth, who shows the world what God and his rule is really like. It stands to reason that Abraham somehow should look and act like the God he's representing. Secondly, Abraham will teach people to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that God can make him into a great nation and make him a blessing to all nations. Somehow, God's big plans for the world are tied to Abraham's practicing the way of the Lord and doing righteousness and justice. It takes two to make a thing go right. Now we come to two of my favorite Hebrew words, the words justice and righteousness, which are found for the first time right here in the Bible in Genesis 18 and are used hundreds of times throughout the rest of the Bible. Here's those two words. Righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedakah, and that's used 159 times. And the word justice is the Hebrew word mishpat, which is used 149 times. Tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. What's interesting is that the words justice and righteousness, although they are separate words in Hebrew, are sometimes also put together on purpose. They function as what English and grammar nerds call a hendiatus, which means one through two. It's basically an idiomatic expression. The biblical writers use hendiatus to explain complex terms. It's like stereo headphones, where the left ear is playing some notes and the right ear is playing others, but they cannot and should not be separated. They're meant to be taken together. These two words, justice and righteousness, appear linked together more than three dozen times in the Old Testament, starting for the very first time right here in Genesis 18. So let's unpack each word. Sedekah, righteousness. 
Because I am of a certain age, whenever I hear the word righteous, I hear it said in the voice of Keanu Reeves, a la Bill and Ted. Righteous. In a religious setting, however, the connotation of the word righteous is often a stand-in for the term morally perfect. But that's not exactly the meaning of the word tzedakah. The word tzedakah comes from the Hebrew root word tzedakh, which means straight. It's used literally of objects when they do what they're supposed to do. For example, in the Bible, accurate weights and measures are measures of tzedakh, and safe paths for sheep are paths of tzedakh. Building on this root word, tzedakah refers to human beings who are straight or in the right order with their relationships, primarily and first with God himself, and then also with others. The word tzedakah refers to a life of right or straight relationships. Bible scholar Alec Motyer defined righteous as, quote, those who are right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. Another Bible scholar, Tim Mackey, defines tzedakah as, quote, an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. In my own words, the word tzedakah means, quote, a state of affairs in which humans are connected to God and each other properly and therefore live in harmony and peace. And so, while the connotations I use to hold in my own head about the word righteous only involve personal piety, my own standing with God, the ancient Hebrew culture from which this word flows knows nothing of that drastic private individualism. Sedeca has profoundly social overtones to it because it deals not just with God, but with every person I encounter. Mishpat, justice. The word mishpat has a basic meaning of treating people equitably, with the same fairness. For example, in the law given to Moses to govern Israel, God tells Israel to, quote, have the same mishpat for the foreigner as the native. Mishpat is not just individual, though. It's about systems. In this example, the Israelites are commanded to acquit or punish every person on the merits of the legal case, regardless of that person's race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. Another example, Deuteronomy 18 says that the priests who operate the temple and therefore cannot work or farm because they're busy operating the temple should be supported by the rest of the people. This support is called the priest's mishpat, which refers to what they are due, what is rightfully theirs. To not support the priests while they have been busy operating a temple for the benefit of the entire community would be unjust. It would be a violation of mishpat. But it goes even further than that. Do you remember that Hebrew word, ze'acha, which means outcry? That's a unique cry from a person who's being unjustly oppressed. Sometimes power is used in a way to take or steal things from people that are rightfully theirs. And usually that's done by a powerful person or powerful people toward those who are weaker or more vulnerable. So let's look at that. The Quartet of the Vulnerable. Sometimes important things like life or liberty or property are stolen from people who are the weakest. Injustice, as you know, is not equally spread out over society. Injustice falls disproportionately on the weak and those with low social or economic status who cannot defend themselves. 
This is why we read in the Bible, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, God says that practicing tzedakah and mishpat involves caring for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, people on the lowest rungs of power in society who would be at extreme risk for starvation and death if there were a famine or a war or a flood. These four are mentioned so often in the Old Testament scriptures that scholars have a nickname for them, the, quote, quartet of the vulnerable. I'm going to read a couple of passages from the Bible, from the Old Testament. Go ahead and pay close attention to God's attitude toward the people in these powerless groups. Zechariah 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Psalm 146. This is about God. Verse 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, and he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So why should we care about the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and the fatherless? Because God does. It's his character. As Tim Keller writes, If God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to have the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak, then what should God's people be like? They must be people who are likewise passionately concerned for the weak and the vulnerable. Two great tastes that taste great together. But again, these words, siddikah and mishpat, are hendias. They have a deeper meaning when they're combined. Certainly, they can be used alone, but the combination is meant to grab our attention. I mean, a peanut butter sandwich is just okay, but man, you add some jelly, now you are talking. And, as Beyonce once said, I don't think you're ready for this jelly. So, righteousness and justice are meant to go together. In this way, sitaka, righteousness, is how you aim to live in front of God. This is your internal set of values, your virtues which when lived out fosters God's good rule of peace and justice. This is primary, or it's first. And mishpat is what you do when siddikah is violated. It's what you do in order to restore things that have been broken. Sometimes it's punishment. Sometimes it's reparation. Often it's protection or care. It's putting things back right. There are two examples I want to call your attention to. The first is found in the book of Ezekiel, where God defines Siddiqah and Mishpat for Ezekiel. And another famous one is found in the book of Job. In both circumstances, we see Siddiqah and Mishpat upheld and illustrated in robust ways. Listen to this. Ezekiel 18, verse 5. Suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. 
He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. So let's just examine the kind of actions that best describe someone acting with, quote, justice and righteousness. Sitakon Mishpat. The majority are social. Yes, that's true. But they also stem from a deep set of internal virtues, a desire not to steal, a desire to be fair, a desire to treat everyone as the image of God, a desire to be generous, a desire to protect the weak. But the way those desires or those virtues work themselves out is what we might call benevolent social behavior, not lending money at an exorbitant interest, just called usury, refusing to treat women like sexual objects, dealing fairly in business, giving food to the hungry and clothes to the needy. These are behaviors that God says are righteous. And there is a promise that such a person will live, be protected, and be honored by God. Okay, now let's turn to the book of Job, when Job is pleading his case before God for his innocence. When he does, he appeals to his track record regarding justice and righteousness, Siddiquan Mishpat. Job says the following words, Job 29, I have put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. These also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. This is what Job says about how he understands justice and righteousness. Francis I. Anderson points out in his commentary on Job that this is actually one of the most important texts in Scripture for the study of Israelite ethics. Here we see Job living out in clear detail the concepts of justice and righteousness in ways that are both outward and social, helping the lame, taking care of the needy like a good father, defending the rights and dignity of immigrants. These are all justice issues, and for Job, they show his righteousness before God. God wants Abraham to reflect his ethical qualities. God says that he chose Abraham so that he would train his family in the way of the Lord to practice Siddiquah and Mishpat. And God says that Abraham will do this so that the Lord can bring about the promise that all the nations will be blessed. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it this way. He says, quote, This link is an ethical one. The community God seeks for the sake of his mission is to be a community shaped by his own ethical character with specific attention to righteousness and justice 
in a world filled with oppression and injustice. Only such a community can be a blessing to the nations. According to Genesis 18.19, the ethical quality of life, the people of God, is the vital link between their calling and their mission. God's intention to bless the nations is inseparable from God's ethical demand on the people he has created to be that agent of blessing. In this, we learn from God himself that loving God means learning to act as he would if he were in our place. This means a deep desire stemming from one's loyal love of God to discover and reflect God's character, that's the internal part, and then living this out the best way we can in every situation. That's the external part. I don't see how you can have one without the other. How we treat others reveals our heart toward God. This is action that stems from something inside our character, virtue, convictions. The verse we just listened to from the book of Job, for example, speaks about social concerns. But in the larger passage, if you read it, Job also speaks of internal things like lust, greed, and idolatry. Personal piety and social righteousness seemed intertwined, and not just here, throughout Scripture. A more proper definition. A few years ago, Gary Hagen, the director of the International Justice Mission, came to speak at our church, and someone asked him, with your years of work, how would you define the word justice? A great question. Hagen responded that justice is, quote, giving people what God wants them to have. That was a lot to chew on. For me, it raised the question, well, what does God want people to have? And how do I know? Do I turn to the Ten Commandments? God wants people to have their lives and not be murdered. God wants people to enjoy the fruit of the labor and not have it stolen from them. But the Ten Commandments doesn't explicitly say anything like, uh, don't kidnap children. Do we turn instead to prominent Enlightenment philosophers like John Locke, who once wrote that God gave all people the right to, quote, life, liberty, and property? And those concepts were imported by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, who changed them to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But happiness is weird. It's super vague and problematic for the black people in chains because of Jefferson's own private goal of happiness. Ugh. Do we turn to modern philosophers like John Rawls? whose famous philosophical thought experiment called The Veil of Ignorance proposed that we should construct society as though we don't know where we're going to be born. John Rawls proposed The Veil, where all members step out of their current lives and pretend they're about to be born at random into the world into any position in the global society. This veil forces all parties to consider society from the perspective of all members, including the worst-off and the best-off members. This exercise, Rawls says, should change the way we organize society's rules. If you've got a 15% chance of being born into a family that makes less than $2 per day, and a 56% chance of being born into a family that makes less than $10 a day, you'd probably want a shot at living a good life, right? Helpful. But again, how can we even ensure those outcomes as people? And doesn't this put the definition of justice into human hands? Where's God in this process? I like Toggin's response because it demands that we seek what the Bible says, lest we move into the realm of conjecture. As New Testament scholar Scott McKnight wrote, quote, For Jesus, justice describes behaviors and conditions that conform to God's standard, to God's kingdom. In his book, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life, David Taylor helps us 
by combing the Psalms for ideas about what it means to practice Siddiquan Mishpat. In that investigation biblically, David Taylor found a following things, including justice shows no partiality. It maintains the rights of the weak and it rescues the needy, Psalm 82. It rejects the use of arrogant words and the desire to take advantage of the vulnerable, Psalm 94. The just do not kill the innocent, Psalm 10. The just refuse to speak out two sides of their mouth, Psalm 28. The just are not bloodthirsty, Psalm 139. The just are not greedy, Psalm 10 and Psalm 73. The just are not conniving, Psalm 94. The just do not love violence, Psalm 11. And the just are those who love justice, and they actively reject all systems that oppress people, Psalm 58. You and I could also comb the more than 2,000 scriptures that speak about justice in the Bible. And the narrative of the Bible both challenges, confronts, and affirms various modern conceptions of justice in some profound ways. Here's just a few that I found worth considering. Is power always evil? Coming back from Africa, I had to wrestle with the long history of power being used to steal and take, especially from the African continent by Western powers. This led to so much perpetuated evil that many academics and philosophers in our postmodern world concluded that the only inevitable use of power is the oppression of people. Therefore, they said, power is suspect, or worse, power is evil. The emphasis in a lot of conversations today about justice revolve around power. But is power a product of the fall? The Bible says it's more complex than that. Is not power, the ability to do something, a creational good given to humanity by God himself? In the creation story in Genesis, we are told that humans are given by God dominion, and we're told by God to rule, which are words of kingly power. But the emphasis undergirding this power is that humans are to use that power in wise ways, in submission to God's leadership, in ways that lead to broader shalom or peace and human and earthly flourishing. As we've seen in the broader biblical mandates about the quartet of the vulnerable, we have to use that power to keep our eyes on the weak and vulnerable, to help them out. We cannot use our power to hurt. I'm reminded of a moment right before Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2013 when he went to the church at St. John's Episcopal Church where a pastor from Atlanta named Andy Stanley gave a brief message titled, What to Do When You're the Most Powerful Man in the Room. The implications were immediate. For most of the people attending the service, especially President-elect Obama, they would soon be the most powerful person in any room they entered. Stanley based the answer to that question from Scripture specifically the life of Jesus, saying, quote, you leverage that power for the benefit of other people in the room. This is Abrahamic, be a blessing to all the nations kind of language. Question number two, what should our posture toward the oppressor be? If you spend any amount of time around toddlers with no emotional maturity, or on social media, but I repeat myself, you'll see an easy human tendency. Vengeance. We want to demonize and drive out those who are, quote, bad. What is most shocking about the biblical vision of justice is that it demands non-retaliation. Almost nobody does this in our modern world. The political left wants to demonize and drive out the political right and vice versa. 
you're an enemy. No, no worse. You're Hitler. No, no, you're worse. You're the Antichrist and the Joker wrapped up together. You're the Anti-Joker. Justice does demand that the oppressor be held accountable. Vengeance is mine, says God. But the biblical story offers another option besides destruction. In the Bible, there is an opportunity, a chance for atonement, for forgiveness that comes from having a repentant heart. That possibility, that possibility of atonement, destroys enemies too in the most chilling and complete way possible. It turns oppressors into friends and brothers. In the story of Jonah, we see God sending his prophet to Jonah's hated enemies to call them to repent. The prophet Jeremiah tells the Jewish people in captivity to seek the shalom or prosperity of the Babylonian city that captured and enslaved them. And of course, Jesus refuses to call down fire on Rome, but dies on a cross, pleading for his father to forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. In our own nation's history, the civil rights movement took up this ethic of nonviolence. As best-selling author and Wheaton College New Testament professor Esau Macaulay wrote, quote, What do black Christians do with the rage that we rightly feel? We send it to the cross of Christ. Question three, what's our individual and collective role? Author and pastor Brian Lawrence once wisely said there's a difference between activists and reconcilers. Activists focus on the problem, which is good and helpful. They focus on the what of the issue, but they often stop there. An activist, ideally, is telling the truth about reality, and this is absolutely critical regarding justice. But Lourdes points out that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19, we are given what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. Reconcilers don't just focus on what is wrong, but also the how of fixing it. It's not merely issue-driven, but it's also people-driven. And here's why that's important. If this is about people, then it's going to involve forgiveness. And though we must never rush past truth to get to forgiveness, forgiveness is often required when injustice has been done. To quote C.S. Lewis, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is costly. But if reconciliation, which is a two-way street, is ever going to happen, then we must broker that deal. Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in reconciliation and forgiveness when he emerged from prison after 27 years. In prison, Mandela was abused terribly by his jailers. These were men who ordered him to dig and then climb into a grave-shaped trench in the prison yard. And then, as he lay in the dirt, likely wondering if these guards were going to kill him, they urinated on him. But now, Mandela had been elected president of the entire country of South Africa, and the world wondered if this would be like every other revolutionary upheaval of power. Now that the abused minority had power, would they enact a deadly vengeance? At his inauguration, there would be a great many dignitaries and global leaders in attendance, but there was one additional name that Mandela insisted upon, his former jailer, Paul Gregory. Seeing Mandela at the inauguration with his former jailer was a symbol for the world to see. It was an outworking of a very biblical idea. Do not overcome evil with evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Question four, what's the end goal? It's easy to examine the world's issues, which go back millennia, and say, this cycle of violence is never going to end. Is there an underlying unity we're trying to get back to as humans? In our modern world, you sometimes see or hear echoes that society can never be unified again. And to a certain extent, I understand this, especially if you're speaking from a context of American history. African-Americans, Asians, women, all look to the past and say, um, we were never unified. You want to go back to the days of slave ships, World War II internment camps, and pre-suffrage injustice? No thanks. And if your perspective is only the history of the United States, well, that might make sense. But if your narrative is larger, the entire biblical narrative, for example, then you have unique hope. Because as humans, we are united. We all bear the imago dei. You can see echoes of this biblical hope in our own civil rights movement here in the United States, led and organized by Christians in churches who pushed for the shared brotherhood of all humanity. Yes, it's true that unity has been fractured by sin that split us into hostile competing factions, but that unity is one we can get back to. It's one that we must get back to. But even more than that, not only does the biblical narrative begin with our unity, the Imago Dei, it also ends with our unity in new creation. As humans, we are united and we will be united. So this vision is not something to get back to. It's also something to look forward to. Scripture tells us that things will get worse before that final end of days. But that means the church has a chance by modeling a community that is, in the words of N.T. Wright, a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group, gender-blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. And if we do that, we can shine God's light made even brighter by the darkness. Seek and ye shall find. Since that moment in Africa, I wish I could tell you how easy it has been to fully practice Siddhikan Mishpat. I wish I could tell you my three-step process for how I clearly not only see all the failures and complex systems that bring about pain and suffering, but how to correct them and correct them easily. I wish I could tell you how my powers of persuasion easily overcome any and all objections I encounter, including ones in my own heart. But I might as well tell you that I donned the Infinity Gauntlet and single-handedly defeated Thanos. It's just not that easy. Even providing you with practical steps on how to be good at doing good, how to make sure you don't accidentally commit well-intentioned harm, is a subject worthy of a whole other book. And right now, just in case you're wondering, a great place to start is the book When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty, Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. But, back to the point, I don't know how to do any of that. But I will leave you with this. When I think about the nearly insurmountable task of attempting to be a person of Siddhika and Mishpat in a real world of real injustice, I think about a moment in our own nation's history that occurred in 1970 during the Apollo 13 mission to the moon. Apollo 13 was slated to be the third mission to land on the lunar surface, but during a routine stirring of the oxygen tanks, a spark brought about by a faulty wire caused the entire oxygen tank to explode. The control module was left without oxygen for life support systems or for generating power, so the crew had to move into the landing module. 
The mission changed sharply from explore the moon to get these three men home alive. There was just one problem. The carbon dioxide air scrubbers in the landing module were only meant to support two men, not three. Mission Control watched as the CO2 levels rose, knowing it was only a matter of time before the levels reached a point that was deadly. Now, there were more CO2 scrubbers that could absorb more CO2 in the control module, but those filters were square, and the ones in the landing module were circular. Mission Control in Houston had a problem to fix. Fit a square peg into a round hole. Now, if you've seen the movie based on this story, in the film, there's a team of engineers that walk into a room and someone dumps a box onto a table that contains every single item the team of astronauts in Apollo 13 had on their entire ship. One of the engineers, wearing a simple short-sleeved dress shirt with a black tie and a silver tie clip, explains the situation like this. He says, okay, people, listen up. The people upstairs handed us this one, and we got to come through. We got to find a way to make this... He holds up a square CO2 filter box. Fit into this. And he holds up a long cylindrical CO2 filter box. Using nothing but that. And he points to the contents scattered on the table. The technicians look down at the table and they stand with their hands on their hips, staring at the table for a second. And then someone says, let's get it organized. And the team breaks into motion. The team springs into action. And you can hear someone in the background say, better get some coffee going. I love this scene. I love it. I love the urgency. I love the commitment. I love the stakes. I love the problem solving. As an audience, we feel the weight of the mission. We know that failure is not an option because people's lives hang in the balance. We know that if these geeky engineers do not come through, real people are really going to die. But as an audience, we also know, like the technician, that this is geometrically impossible. Square boxes do not go into round holes. This task is impossible, and we feel that weight. But what I love most is this line, better get some coffee going. It's a sign of commitment. It means we're not leaving this room. We will emerge with a solution. Together, we will work hard. All of us, we are in until this problem is solved. In recent months, I've also begun reflecting on perhaps accidentally, the meaningful opening line that was delivered by that engineer. Let me read it again. Okay, people, listen up. The people upstairs handed us this one, and we gotta come through. I feel this in my bones. Church, listen. The people upstairs, our higher authority, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, they handed us this one. They are giving us an assignment. We gotta come through. Do you feel this? Do you feel this too? Do you see the utter and absolute weight of the brokenness of this world? The story in Apollo 13 reminds me of another moment recorded in Acts 11, where a man named Agabus comes to the church in Antioch. Agabus had received a prophetic word, a revelation from God himself, that there would be a great famine over all the world. Bad news, bad news indeed. There was going to be a pandemic, so to speak. So what should they do? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright had this to say. He says, quote, So what do the Antioch Jesus followers say? They do not say either, This must be a sign that the Lord is coming back soon, or 
This must mean that we have sinned and need to repent, or even this will give us a great opportunity to tell the wider world that everyone has sinned and needs to repent. Nor do they start a blame game, looking around at the civil authorities in Syria or the wider region or even the Roman Empire to see whose ill treatment of the ecosystem or whose tampering with food distribution networks might have contributed to this dangerous situation. Instead, they ask three simple questions. Who is going to be at special risk when this happens? What can we do to help? And who do we send? Guys, this seemingly untheological response is actually just practicing righteousness and justice, siddiqah and mishpat. So, three steps. Step one, let us listen to the outcry. Which people who bear the image of God are at special risk? None of this works if we don't listen well to the cries of people who are suffering because of a violation of Siddiqah and Mishpat. Remember in the story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah, God comes down because he heard an outcry. He heard the outcry. Sometimes as people, we're not too good at this because we know instinctively and spiritually that if we hear an outcry, that's going to make a moral demand of us. We must be brave and we must be smart in this. It really does take courage to enter into these places, but we must do it. In our world, something is terribly wrong and cries out to be put right. This next paragraph is probably going to get me in trouble, but I guess I don't care. Here's an example of refusing to listen to outcries. This past year, 2020, our brothers and sisters from the black church community cried out in near unanimity. Black lives are being taken unjustly. We must do something. Black lives matter. This outcry was met with a lot of resistance. I heard a lot of excuses. There was a deep and grievous shortage of empathy, of listening. Responding to the murders of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, and Breonna Taylor by saying all lives matter is like telling a starving person, yes, everyone deserves to eat. We must do better. We must listen better. We must drop the defensiveness, listen, and investigate. Please, we're one family, church. If someone comes into the ER with a knife in their back, I want every doctor to discuss the best medical options. I am open to every single possible idea about a solution, about what to do. Let's discuss it, family. Put the best options on the table. What must not happen is to have folks pretending there's not even a knife in there. The outcries reach the Lord's ears and move him to compassion and action. Does it do the same for me? Does it do the same for us? That's a good question to ask. Step two, what do I or what do we have? The Shema and later Jesus tells us to love God with all of our strength. The Hebrew word for strength is the word meod, which is like an adverb. It's used to mean very or much. Like in Genesis, when Yahweh creates the world, it's said to be meod good, very good. Or the floods of Noah were meod powerful, very powerful. Or Job was said to be meod wealthy, very wealthy. In this case, it means your muchness. Love God with your muchness. Every opportunity, every chance, every possibility, every moment, every capacity. 
In Greek, this word is translated as dunamis, which means power, like dynamite, or any strength that you have, physical strength, power, wealth, connections, privilege, etc. So as a group, as a people, and as individuals, let's pour everything on that table like in Apollo 13. Let's organize it. Somebody get the coffee going. Step three, how am I or how are we going to share what we have? The story of Abraham in Genesis 18 reveals that God wants his followers to know that he not only cares about suffering in the world, but that he comes down to get involved and confront it. God wants to build a collective of image bearers who care about it and get involved and confront it too. Again, not that this story is about me in any way, but that vision of biblical justice is deeply impactful for me. After our group came back from Africa, I felt like I was that engineer in that room at Houston. We all did. I'm not good at a lot of things. I'm not good at strategic planning or finance, but I took what I have, a speaking ability and a love for teenagers, and began speaking at other churches, explaining the dire needs that I had seen. I even spoke in high schools. At one point, the student leadership class was so inspired, they took it upon themselves to raise money for the project. The theater department put on a special dance performance, focusing the night on raising money for clean drinking water and irrigation wells. Those students raised nearly $11,000 to drill wells. I also realized we needed to be good at being good. This meant being more efficient. It was better to send over strategic partners to develop relationships with the local ministry partners in the field than spend a ton of resources taking 20 people over. This wasn't tourism. We realized that empowering local leaders like Nagesa was critical. At one point, because he was traveling around the entire Rift Valley, we bought him a dirt bike. It was a few thousand dollars, but it made him a hundred times more efficient and effective. We raised money as a church for more wells. And at one point the following year, I got to go back to Zawai and see the well gushing out clean drinking water for the village, for Gannett, for her family, for her neighbors. No more did the women have to walk two miles to dirty pools of water, often contaminated by dead animals and runoff. These wells were game changers. We funded a well for a local school run by the church so the kids could have water. Around Christmas, the youth group rallied and donated their own money to buy the school a pregnant cow. That's right, a pregnant cow. This allowed one cow to be kept for milk to give to the students and the other to be used to produce more baby cows. Then Nagesso told us the school needed more teachers. When we asked the cost, he said it would be about $600 per year. $600 per year for a teacher. We hired five for five years on the spot. Young kids like Gannett, now freed from the burden of water collection, were able to go to school to learn. Nagesso took some of the men in the village on a trip to another region to train them in agricultural practices. They learned from professional African farmers about crop rotation, which crops to plant near each other for natural pest control and best irrigation practices. They bought drought-resistant seed, better seed that would result in better crops, which of course would produce more drought-resistant seed for the next crop, and the next, and the next. Unlike the concreteness of the Apollo 13 mission, looking back on it, I don't know if our team was successful. I don't even know what successful means. The work certainly didn't stop. Sometimes I think about Zawai and how it's a village of roughly 40,000 people. Ethiopia has 112 million people. That's 0.0358% of the population of Ethiopia. 
That's all we helped. But I know that our church and our ragtag team, both here in the U.S. and on the ground in Zawai, really did try. We fought. We fought with everything we had. We sought justice. We went after it. Seek justice. It's fascinating to me later in the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel outlines part of what Sodom's great sin was. And wouldn't you know it, part of their sin is the violation of Siddiquah and Mishpat. The prophet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 16, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Loving God means we seek justice. We stay alert, on the lookout, attempt to find it, and then achieve justice both in our own lives and corporately. We live right. We do what's right. We help set things right. As the prophet Ezekiel said to the people of Israel, in Ezekiel 18, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. And this is the key lesson that we learn from this story of Abraham. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means that we seek justice. We live right, we do what's right, and we help set things right. The words of Ezekiel, stop doing what's wrong, do what's right. Follow God, get a new heart and a new spirit. That's beautiful, right? There's just one problem. On our own, we can't do it. We need help. And that leads us to the next part of the tragic story of Sodom and Gomorrah.